This is The First Stop, a podcast with the aim of exploring the minds of artists in and around New Haven. I'm your host, David Livingston, an artist and educator at University of New Haven. In this episode, we'll navigate the mind of Hartford-based artist Hong Hong. The works discussed in this podcast can be found on our blog at firststopart.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at firststop.art. Hong builds colorful and monumental compositions using paper pulp. These large-scale works record the shifting conditions of time and environment as they cure outside over many hours. Hong is fascinated both by things that change over time and objects like horizons that seem to stay the same even as we change. Her ephemeral paperworks are constantly evolving as they absorb the conditions of the spaces they occupy and as their lustrous colors gradually fade to gray. We'll discuss the process and philosophy behind Hong's captivating work. I just got to see your show Dark Segments, which was really awesome. Like, to see, I mean, it was just a very stunning Thank you. show and Thanks. a great experience. Uh-huh. My familiarity with your work mm-hmm. was from the Washington Art Association and just right. seeing stuff around online. Yeah. Your work was colorful, but with an emphasis on the color blue, it seems like. Yeah. It seems like you kind of broke away from that in this show yeah. with these like peachy. Mm-hmm colors yeah what motivated you to do that why did you want to do that I knew that I wanted to start with a very saturated color palette Mm -hmm. because the idea is that a lot of these pieces are dyed with fiber reactive dyes um, Mm. which fade from direct contact with sunlight so Mm -hmm. the idea is that eventually this really sort of vibrant body of work will be actually brought outside to bleach in the sun And eventually the color will dissolve back into grayscale. Um, Some of these pieces are also made with construction paper as a as a initial material, which, as you know, fades very, very quickly. So the combination of the instability of the dyes, as well as the vulnerability of and really the weakness of construction paper is is it's sort of planned in advance to facilitate the dissolve of color. I want to get back to that, mm-hmm. um, but I feel like I need mm-hmm. to. We need to talk about what your work looks like because yeah. since it's a podcast, oh right, yeah, totally. People can people should look at uh-huh. our website uh, firststopart.com yeah. mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Uh, Hong Hong's website. What's your website? Uh, it's Hong Hong Studio. You can also go on my Instagram, which is just Hong Hong Studio. Okay, so just to describe okay. your work okay. and. You know, so people can picture it if they have yeah. it's work on paper, but it's not the way you would think when somebody says work on paper. Right. It's like a construction of paper. Almost. Yeah, I would consider my pieces personally to be works of paper. Um, I begin with either bark or reuse paper that I've collected. Um, the material is then processed by beading by hand or blending up, blending it all up in um a blender, and and then I sort of make my own colors by dyeing the processed material with different kinds of dyes. And most all of these pieces are made outside on on top of a twelve by eight uh, modular paper making mold and decal. A twelve by eight foot. Yeah, foot. Yeah. And so the pieces are extremely large. And it's what a modular what what a paper making mold and decal essentially is. It's just it allows water to drain and the fibers to intertwine mm. on top of a surface. And once the fibers dry, it becomes a sheet of paper. Um, so I make, I do a lot of my work outside in the summer. I make a lot of different pieces. And then these pieces sort of coalesce into compositions in different um, galleries and exhibition spaces. And most of them are 12 by 8 
due to, or at least around yeah. that size. Yeah, I yeah. mean, height-wise, I mean, I've started sort of making more organic and irregular shapes this summer, so mm-hmm. it's it's kind of difficult to gauge exactly how wide the pieces are. But typically, my final compositions will fill up a space as much as it can. So for dark segment, um, I think most of the pieces are probably 13 to 15 feet in height, mm-hmm. and they range between 14 and 20 feet in terms of width. Yeah. Yeah, so they're quite large. So what's important to you as an artist about the large-scale format that you're working with? Um, It's important to me that in the physical process that I use in my studio practice that I... Because I, I, I grew up in, in China, mm-hmm. in the metropolis, mm-hmm. and, I was, and it was very difficult to experience or understand understand scale within a city that had very little negative space yes you know and when you're referring to negative space you mean like open Open, sky yeah or just yeah because the buildings were so tall that you could only see the sky in slivers and that was my experience of perspective when I was a young girl growing up and then moving from a metropolis in China to North Dakota really impacted me. Yeah. And that sort of visceral experience of walking out into a snowy field after a blizzard in February um, is an experience that I carry with me in my subconscious. And so when I make work, I'm constantly looking for that sensation of being something very small, surrounded by something much larger. Right. Um, so that the the satisfaction of working on such a large surface, as well as the experience of working outside during dawn or dusk, you know, you're not really your studio. I mean, I, I think sometimes when an artist sits in a studio space, you, it mm-hmm. can feel very limiting in a way, at least mm-hmm. for me, the walls are. And mm-hmm. so when you're working outside and it becomes about familiar sensations and changing temperatures and dimming light, all of it yeah. kind of at least it feels to me to be very endless. Your, and your work is very sort of skin-like, which makes me think of it as porous, sort of letting yeah. in the outside yeah. in a funny way. of course. And so having it outside, mm-hmm. almost absorbing yeah. the surroundings Definitely. in a funny way seems yeah. important to you. It is. Um, it's really funny that you bring up the, the word skin because paper is actually very similar to skin. Mm-hmm. If you think about human skin, it scars. Mm-hmm. It evidences passages in time in terms of wrinkling and, you know, not dissolving, but I'm try- I can't think of the right word, but... It's not stable. It's not stable. Skin yeah. is not stable. Um, so paper is very similar. I was talking with my friend Megan recently, and she brought up the fact that Aristotle once compared one's soul to mm. wax, which is a material capable of holding deep crevices and shallow impressions of experience. Mm. And... For me, paper has that same capacity. And papermakers refer to that as paper's memory. Oh, wow. So so if you think of, like, the surface of a planet, how it has craters and volcanoes and, you know, whatever water used to, you know, carve into the surface of the planet, paper is the same way. Whatever you do to to the paper physically, the paper will remember it, right? So there's a lot of textures and... and, if paper dries on plexiglass, it dries very differently than it does on fabric. Yeah. yeah so it's not stable, and, and, and I think that's why it seems very human to me. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So You've talked about paper in almost photographic terms, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in that it's record, like, and you just were talking about it, sort of recording, yeah, yeah. but more in a tactile mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's, experience or time right yeah 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 just because you brought up moving from a city in china to uh-huh. north dakota yeah that seems like a radical change oh it was it was like, totally radical <laughs> yeah i mean north dakota of all places in america right seems like the yeah. polar opposite of yeah. i've never been to north dakota so i right. can't even imagine right what it was like right um well i also the city that i grew up in was in the tropics so i only mm. saw snow once Wow. And then when I was 10, I moved to North Dakota with my mother. And I mean, it it was radical in every sense of the word. Yeah. You know, in terms of one's experience of landscape, one's experience of an understanding of scale. I mean, the sounds are very different. Yeah. I grew up thinking that life sounded one way. 
Right. Yeah. There's a lot of conversation, a lot of construction noises, a lot of mm -hmm. beeping. And life sounds very different in North Dakota. It's quite silent. Yes. And in some way, I, I think that I'm interested in the things that do not change. Yes. As one changes. So I'm interested simultaneously in change and, you know, in, in what is eternal and what is momentary and sort of the things that exist within that scale. Um, I don't know where I'm going with this. Well, no, I think you're going somewhere <laughs> interesting. <laughs> We're all going somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's always interesting, but hopefully. Um, a lot of these pieces are made within a day, mm -hmm. right? So they're, they're born at dusk, I mean dawn, and then hopefully they experience, they experience everything that we would experience within the day. Like they see the stars rise, they watch the moon rise, they see the sunrise, and then I peel them the next morning. Mm. And it's sort of using the, the duration of a day to perhaps speak about the duration, if that's the right word, of infinity. So a lot of, a lot of these pieces are actually um, made from pieces that I've created before. So what's interesting about paper is that once you add water to a sheet of paper, it becomes pulp again. So pulp is what papermakers refer to sort of raw processed fiber that's about to be made into paper, but it's not quite paper yet. So these pieces contain iterations of, I guess, objects that were created before and the ideas that papermaking is cyclical. Um, the process of papermaking feels like a, not, not necessarily a calendar, but a clock in some ways, or maybe like the swing of a pendulum. Mm. And it's very ritualistic in that the same steps are used every single time to create something different. And it's very important to me that my practice follows this um, circular path. Totally. That, it, that, it, that it's self-generative and that it kind of swings from one end into another end. I was also interested in, you know, because this seems to relate to, you quoted both Siddhartha Buddha. <laughs> I did. <laughs> and uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. I did, yes. And um, they're sort of talking about that in a way, in yeah. the quotes. Yeah. Do you read a lot of Nietzsche? Uh, I'm or... going to be honest. I don't, I, I, I've tried to read Nietzsche. He's hard. Um, <laughs> but he is, he's difficult. So I, I take, I read him in very small doses. I read one book of his uh -huh. that he he wrote one book that was meant for the masses. Oh, uh, which it was one kind is of, it? <sighs> it's not. It's not the spake, whatever that word that I can't pronounce is. No, I. It's only it's like ninety pages, <laughs> and it was written so that yeah. like the popular the populace would understand yeah. what he was talking about. And right. I've read that one, and it was right. actually kind of a fun read but uh -huh. then I went to try to read yeah. his other stuff and it was, yeah. it was a slog yeah. in a way. Yeah. I the mean, ideas are really interesting. Yeah, I'm I'm that's I'm 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 sometimes the language stops me but his ideas are interesting and he does take his ideas from things that came before him. Yes. Um and so when I was making this work I was actually learning about the idea of eternal return mm -hmm. which he talks about. I first Learned about that through reading Milan Kandora and his okay. book, The Light, The Unbearable Lightness of Being. And he's I've sort heard of, of that. Yeah, before, so yeah. it's an homage to Nietzsche, and Nietzsche is paying homage to lots of lots of other different people. But and was Nietzsche influenced by Siddhartha Buddha? I'm do you sure think? in some he must way. Have been, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, yeah. But it's the idea that if our universe is a combination of distinct parts. Yeah. Then given enough time, whether it's 100 million years or an aeon, the same exact combinations will resurface. So say in like 250,000 million years, you and I will be sitting here again as we are speaking about Nietzsche. Um, oh, that's interesting. Right. Yeah. Um, so the paper sort of is an homage to that idea. And so I'm really trying to use the same materials over and over again to see what they can become. Yes. You know, so it's a philosophical engagement with my material as well as my practice. Fascinating. Um, so back to the, the fading. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, in some ways, that's less cyclical in that yeah. it's a permanent yeah. change. So it's sort of a yeah. like a slow death or yeah. 
um, how would you kind of tie? I mean, it seems very related to what you're yeah. talking about, but yeah. it, it seems different. Do you see a difference in it or uh, a departure from? Not necessarily because um, once the colors have evaporated, then I turn, I dye it again with different colors. I see. And then the next, ah, right? So in yeah. a way it is, it, I think for me, it's more like a reincarnation. Mm-hmm. The idea that a piece of work is born, it lives for a little bit, and then like us, it dies. And then and then it has a chance to move forward to something else. Mm-hmm. I see them as sort of maybe different ways of talking about the same thing or working with the same ideas. You put a lot of time and mm-hmm. energy into the work. Like mm-hmm. I was actually watching the um, <laughs> Gorky's granddaughter oh, that was yeah. recorded. Yeah. Um, I actually just spoke to um, Zachary Keating. Oh, I love Zach. Yeah. Hey, Zach. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but um, you talked a lot about the labor yeah. involved yes. in making these works. Yes. Um, it's very physical. And it seems exhilarating in a way that they're mm-hmm. temporary, but also do you have moments where you're just like, God, I wish I could just make this thing live mm-hmm. forever? That's a difficult question to answer. I think if I ever create something that I thought should live forever, I wouldn't make art anymore. Because for me, art making feels very much like a sentimental journey. Mm -hmm. And I think sentimental journeys are always difficult because it seems like the rate at which the horizon disappears almost exactly equals one's velocity towards it. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, And I think so much of art is deeply mysterious. You're always trying to catch something out of your peripherals. Right. And it's almost like if, if you catch it, it's only for a moment and then it slips away. Right. It, yeah. that, this probably sounds really abstract, but that's what that's what art making to me at its best is. And if, if yeah. and if something solidifies and I, I think that I've reached perfection, then there would be no point for yeah. me to continue forward. Right. You know, I mean, every single piece that I've made, I, I've I mean, I've loved every single piece that I've made, but. There is a wide, perhaps insurmountable gap between what I see in my mind yeah. and what is physically present, you know. You're saying you envision something, mm-hmm. but it never comes out the I way mean, you envisioned it. No, I mean, it, it comes out in bits and pieces. Yeah. But it's never, or maybe, maybe that it comes out in one piece, and then in making that piece, my idea of, perfection changes right once it's there it's yeah you know i I was thinking when i uh, when you were talking about the horizon kind of how you can never catch the horizon no it's impossible you know but there is this human desire in a funny way to catch the horizon i mean i think about yeah climbing a mountain and you see this view and you look in the distance and there's like a pasture or something and you think God, like, I wish I could be in that pasture. <laughs> and then you go to the pasture, and it's not the same no, it's as not. it looks in the view. Exactly. Exactly. Some, I think that's exact. that was so well said. Yeah, it was very well said. Thank Th- you. Yeah, I think yeah. that there is a, a certain kind of beauty that exists only from a distance. Mm-hmm. And, and it can only live in something that one could never reach. And so when I make paper it pays homage to that idea right and the process of paper making recalibrates every time i make a sheet of paper yeah and i i get new ideas and new things that i want to work on with every single piece that i make right i try i try not to stagnate myself i try to do something that i've never done before in every Mm -hmm. single large-scale pour and that can be rather difficult yeah but it's it constantly informs my interior landscape of what is possible yeah, you talk about the dissolution of personal landscapes. Is that what you're kind of talking about? This idea of mm-hmm. it's always your sort of idea of what a landscape is, is constantly shifting. You like you make a work and then it yeah. changes or is that something else? Um, when I say the dissolution of personal landscapes, I mean a lot of different things. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in flexible surfaces. All of my mm-hmm. work I've noticed my sculptural pieces as well as the paper are flexible. And so I think of landscape as a flexible surface that's changed by forces outside of it and around it. And I think of 
the human skin is something that's very similar. And all of this becomes a metaphor for existence, for life and death. Yes. Um, but in a way, when I say dissolution of personal landscapes, I'm also talking about my personal experiences of, mm-hmm. of moving, mm-hmm. not just from one continent to another, but having moved so much yes. since my girlhood. Yeah. And that experience of looking out at the world from all of these different windows right and and all of these different places and and noticing the things that that really moved me yeah you know um despite the fact that my landscape my personal landscape was constantly changing right and it always had to do with the temperature of the blueness of the sky the wide rivers the sounds of trees and how they change from different moments of the year and now, now i'm thinking about what i really want to say um go for it i was reading a book recently and I think one sentence from the book said, memory is an, is an image seen from the window of a moving train or something. Mm. And it's about the idea that it's composed of all of these variables that are constantly changing, but their mm-hmm. velocities may not match our velocities of experience. Mm. So there is the idea of the time scale of a mountain, mm-hmm. which unfolds over multiple lifetimes. And then there's a time scale of the person who ascends the mountain. And for a brief moment, these separate, distinct timescales intersect and then fall apart. I'm not sure if that really answers your question of what it means for a personal landscape to dissolve and come into being. But um, for me, everything around me has a life of its own. Mm-hmm. It's, there's a lot of glimmering and shimmering that happens. Mm-hmm. And it's just art is just my personal way of giving evidence to mm-hmm. the things that I loved mm-hmm. and the things that were important to me. It, it sounds almost like you're talking a little bit about the instability of memory. Mm-hmm. Is that yeah. correct? Like the idea of, yeah. you know, you can have this memory and then the memory changes or loses yeah. details. Yeah. yeah. Or you changes. put in details that weren't actually or you, there. Right. Yeah. One of the things that was really interesting to me mm-hmm. about your show, Dark Segments, was that it's a very photographable show in that it's so colorful. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it looks yes. great in photographs. Um, and it, So and many it, colors. So many colors. <laughs> and it looks great in person, too. Uh-huh. But there's this whole other level of it in person yeah. because of, again, going back to the skin-like thing. There's yeah. sort of wrinkles. Yeah. And these different textures and yeah. sort of almost areas that are missing. I think it's, I don't know, have you thought of, about the way in which it's mm-hmm. hovering between image and tactile experience? I would be lying if I said I have thought about that. <laughs> so my answer is no, I have not thought about that. Yeah. I mean, I have thought about the idea of a photographic image mm-hmm. and how it has the capacity to distill these culminating interactions within one space yeah, two-dimensionally. And I do think of these pieces as doing something similar, but in, perhaps in a more oblique way. Mm-hmm. Um, wait, what was the question again? It was about sort of the <laughs> way in which, I mean, I don't even know if it was a good question. It was just sort of the way in which yeah. like... All questions are good questions. They look like, mm-hmm. it's sort of a statement in a way, but they look like... You know, they function very much as Mm -hmm. images the way like a photographic Mm -hmm. image functions. Like they're colorful. They look like portals or windows, Mm -hmm. some of them. Mm -hmm. But then like many things, but especially this, the sort of the texture of the paper, these specific wrinkles start to become really important and they start to function in a more almost maybe sculptural kind of way where you're. There's a kind of pleasure in seeing yeah. texture, like yeah. almost if the colors were gone entirely, it would be just an experience of yeah. texture. Yeah. But the texture still remains. And I think I think of tactile and visual as separate experiences mm-hmm. in a way. And maybe, I mean, you can look at something visually and experience the tactile. And that's what I was doing. Yeah. yeah. But color... And shape and yeah. stuff like that is yeah. different. Like you can look at them as compositions, but yeah. then they're also surfaces yeah. that are interesting to look yeah, at. Yeah, that's important. Okay, now I understand what you're asking me. No, it's important that to me that these pieces sort of hover 
in between all of those things mm -hmm. that they offer something they offer a history mm -hmm. that cannot be expressed via images you know because mm -hmm. ultimately they are about i mean they are kind of wild in a way they're they're made outside they like mm -hmm. sit under the stars maybe they go to bed and they wake up and they dry so like it's really important that during the moments in which they are tacked up to the wall that they offer some that they allude to an activity or to durations of time mm -hmm. or to the exterior environment and and I'm not I'm not sure what I'm trying to say <laughs> with all of these things but it's important to me that that they offer the viewer something that they didn't expect to find initially yeah and I think that in an image they function very much like paintings yes right yes they're very they're about color they're very painterly but once you get up close like you said it is sort of a little more sculptural mm -hmm. and and that's that's important to me in a funny way they sort of are sculptures on some level and that you're you're building them up like yeah. with a material i mean i know paintings paint the difference is like a painting can't just be paint or yeah. maybe it could but yeah. most paintings have a support yeah and this the support is the material the ma like exactly. the material is the work yeah yeah like yeah. the material is supporting the work holding it together yeah and giving us a visual experience yeah that's important yeah 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 what are the um you know i see some like they look like turtle shell <laughs> shapes is that an intentional nod to a turtle or is it a um, rand is it sort of more of an abstract physically speaking they came about because i was experimenting with stenciling mm. um eventually i would like to become a lot more precise about where the colors go in certain areas mm -hmm. and I would like to have a little bit more control mm -hmm. over the pore. Mm -hmm. And conceptually speaking, I, w I wanted this body of work to be more about the first moment of contact between different bodies, whether they mm. were celestial or human. Mm. And I wanted them to sort of have this liveliness mm -hmm. to them that my previous work didn't have. And, um, and that's why the organic shapes came about and that's why a lot of the colors came about. And so some of these pieces actually, in some of the compositions that I made earlier, they look very animal-like. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to reference that. I wanted to reference something that was breathing and alive, mm -hmm. you know, um, mm -hmm. but not in a very direct way, mm -hmm. just by offering patterns that one might see in nature or sort of like the architectural shape, shapes of things mm -hmm. in the compositions. So yeah, I wasn't thinking about a turtle in particular, but I was thinking about different patterns. Another thing that's interesting about this most recent work mm -hmm. to me is that, I mean, I suppose you can find these colors in nature, mm -hmm. but they're also, they have a kind of brightness that's very mm -hmm. contemporary yes. in a funny way. Like they're natural and unnatural yeah. at the same time. Yeah. They, no, they definitely are. There are some colors that you probably would never be able to find in nature. Yeah, yeah. like they're very, in some ways, digital or yeah. like something that you'd see on your phone or yeah, yeah. in an advertisement or yeah. something along those lines. Yeah, I mean, I basically, I started, I really wasn't sure how this body of work would look mm -hmm. when I started making it this summer. I knew that I needed to depart from these more organic mm -hmm. splatterings, rectangular splatterings that I had been making. Mm -hmm. And um, I essentially set up a game for myself where I picked um, certain sets of colors. I was mostly thinking about the dissolve between night and day as the mm -hmm. sun rose and as the sun set. Interesting. Um, I see that. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And I just really pushed the saturation of the colors because I knew that I wanted eventually to dissolve the colors and I wanted to evidence that as much as possible um, in the work as I photographed it. But anyway, so I set up this game where I would do one large scale pour every single day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> oh, I'm laughing now. <laughs> but it was so it was a it arduous. It, it was an arduous process. Yeah. Um, I did my best, but whenever weather permitting, I, I did a large scale pour mm -hmm. and I worked within the subset of blue to blue, blue to peach, pink to peach. And I knew that I wanted to break out of the rectangle. So I picked ovals because I was thinking about portals. Actually, I was thinking about windows. So 
actually, what can I explain a little yeah, bit more please, about the work? Please, please. So the way that these works were made was that I would make one sheet of paper, and then I would cut physically cut into the paper. And so the window mm-hmm. of blue that you see in that image, yes. that's actually comes from the fact that I physically removed part of the work. I see. And in some of the other images, um, so in the piece that you think is a turtle shell, mm-hmm. um, that that window that I cut out is actually that pink piece that you see on the on the right. That's yes. actually physically the piece that I cut out from the window in the little rocket that I made. So I think oh, of awesome. these pieces as sisters. They each have a partner. They each have mm-hmm. a twin that th- they're separated from each other at birth and then they become two separate pieces. Um, so and that's how I made a lot of these works, the, the large rectangular works. Um, I, I wanted to talk about the idea of expansion, mm. but I wanted these pieces to feel bigger than, w- than they actually are. Yes. So a way for me to do this was to use a window to reference... Because if you just have a gradient of color, yeah. which happens in the sky or in the sea... That's Mm -hmm. great. It seems endless. But I also wanted to subtly reference the existence of a viewer or someone looking upon it. So having that little head shape. No. Kind of where the oval. The the window is just a way is is an indirect nod to the idea of a viewfinder. Got you. Got you. You know, or Mm -hmm. or someone looking out at something. Totally. And then the big blobs just sort of came from that idea. And it's really important to me that my pieces have a sense of lineage. Yeah. They're related to each other that I can say like my friend Fernaz, who's a poet, always talks about how she seeds her own tomatoes. And she was like, well, you know, I can say that I knew this tomato's great grandmother and great great grandmother. And that idea was really intimate and appealing to me mm-hmm. to create a family of objects mm-hmm. that were then could relate to each other in some way. Mm hmm. I don't know if I'm answering any. No, of your no, questions. no. This is really <laughs> no. You, you're. This is really. <laughs> they have a very. They they have a, a kind of animal existence, like yeah. they do, and in sort of they have a life of their own. Yeah, I, and I feel I, that. I sometimes when I start answering questions, I have no idea. By the time I'm done answering the question, I have no idea what the, what the question was. Sometimes when I start asking a question, I have no idea where it's going. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> no, this is, um, I no, I totally see the yeah. um, breaking out of the rectangle happening. Yeah. yeah. Um, the desire to place the viewer, because that's been important to you, right, with yeah. the horizon. Yeah. And so you're continuing that in a way by yeah. crea- having a window, right? It yeah. gives, it puts us somewhere. Right, right. Right. And right. same with the horizon yeah. line where you overlap. Yeah, yeah. The, the two sheets of right, paper. Right. And if you'll notice on on all of the portals, they're all slightly offset so yeah. that the paper the uh, so the blue in the of what you're looking at actually comes uh, comes out yeah. you know in the outer edges of the piece. Mm-hmm. That was important to me because it's about the idea of like something expanding mm. that it reaches beyond this little window mm, I like, that you're yep. looking through. Okay, I get that. Totally. Yeah. Totally get that. But I don't think that was obvious to anyone except for me <laughs> as I made it. <laughs> I think sometimes things leave impressions on right. people without them yeah. verbalizing it or yeah. being able to verbalize it, though. Yeah. Just to go to some of your slightly older work from like 2017, this piece, um, Composition for a Vivid Dream. Mm-hmm. This has the horizon line where you're overlapping the papers. Mm-hmm. I had a couple of... Um, associations that yeah. I drew mm-hmm. from other works of art yeah. in from the past. And one of them was Water Lilies. Oh, by Monet. By Monet. And the yeah. other was Anselm Kiefer I for lo- some reason. Oh, I love one of my favorite paintings was, oh, I can't remember the name. Ke- one of Kiefer's paintings is one of my favorite paintings of all time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I see that just the horizon. He's really into horizons. Yeah, he is. He's really too. into materials too. Yeah. His paintings are very, very sculptural. Totally. Yeah. And some of the kind of, yeah, some of the ways in which the paper yeah. has that kind of chunky yeah. quality yeah. reminds me of his work, except it's totally, your work is so saturated and <laughs> about color and his, his is not. His are so not saturated. At all. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, you brought up two people whose work I really love. Good. Yeah, yeah Monet, actually, why I fell in love with Monet's work 
I actually hated Monet's work when I first saw it. Yeah. But then I read about him and I think he he wanted to capture the quality of light at a certain time of day. So he lived mm-hmm. in England for a while and there was this hospital. Yeah. And he would show up at the same time every morning to paint the sunrise. And he called all of the pieces from this time essays on light. I mean, I added the on light part, but I imagine it is essays about a particular quality of light. Yeah, you know, that is fascinating because I didn't, when I thought about it, I was just looking at it like, Mm -hmm. oh, my brain just filed up, put a Monet in front of me. But then I didn't think about how conceptually there is a similarity, right, in terms of temporal, the time of day, um, light, um, all of those. Yeah, yeah. So reading about that, changed my perspective of his work and I ended up really admiring his persistence and yeah. the way he thought about what he was doing. I think what happens oftentimes with impressionism as it gets yeah. it's so overly viewed in a I funny know. way. It's that on people, every single coffee mug. It's on every single co- <laughs> yeah. So you just stop seeing it or right. you stop seeing it right. for what it was yeah. at yeah. the time. Yeah, it becomes yeah. white noise almost yeah. in, in contemporary yeah. society. I mean, if you walk into a museum, every single cup has an impressionistic painting on it. But and if you is, go to the Met, right. everybody right. is in the impressionism right. room. Right, but the thing yeah. is, impressionism was very sincere and it was very romantic, mm-hmm. genuine in a way. Mm-hmm. It's very different from the commodified version of what it is today. So I wanted to ask you about mm-hmm. when you became interested in art. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, once upon a time. Okay, so I'll, I'll tell you a story. So when I was born, my wrists weren't were bent because of like a bone deficiency or something. Oh, really? So my parents were really worried that I wouldn't be able to use my hands. But my grandma's awesome and she babysat me when I was a little girl and she used to, I used to have these wooden boards taped to my hand when I was oh little to try gosh. to straighten them out. It was wow. very DIY. This yeah. was in like China before yeah. health insurance was a thing. <laughs> so like and a lot of my baby pictures, it's like me and like my hands are really awkward because there's boards. That's but anyway, so... she would take the boards off and massage my wrists mm. and then she would give me a pencil to try to increase mobility. Mm. So I started drawing that way way wow. before I could even remember Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, so that's how it started. And then also I was very sickly when I was little, so I missed a lot of school. Yeah. And then this was after I actually could remember. Yeah. Um, So I had a lot of babysitters and... My, I started drawing on the walls of my parents' house when I was maybe about two or three. Mm -hmm. And my parents and the babysitters loved it because I was so occupied. I wouldn't say anything for like six hours. It was just like draw all over the walls. Yeah, they were like, do it up. And so so my most, the most precious and beautiful memories to me are just being, being inside a room and just being able to draw wherever I wanted to go. You know, I would Mm. like start with one section in the living room and I'm like, oh, well, I'm done with that story. So let's move into the bedroom next to the lamp. And that's how I spent a lot of my time growing up. And it was amazing. And that's why making art feels like coming home after being away for for a long time. That's really cool. Um, I also wanted just to swing back to the moving to North Dakota. Mm -hmm. It seems like it has had a huge impact on the way you see Mm -hmm. the world. Yes. Um, In a lot of positive ways. Was it a positive experience when it happened? I mean, or was it really Uh... difficult? It was difficult. Yeah. I mean, to leave your one's family behind. Yeah. You know, because in China, families are a lot less nuclear. Mm-hmm. So I grew up with all my aunts and uncles, all my grandparents, all my cousins. And then coming to America with just my mom and dad, it was suddenly a large part of my world was across an ocean. Yeah. You know, so that's, that's obviously rough. not easy. And having to learn a language. Mm-hmm. is just, it's a, it's a most mind-blowing experience. I mean, it's mm-hmm. difficult, but it's also mind-blowing because I think language is the architecture of reality. So when right. your language completely shifts, it's almost like it gives birth to a different person. That's crazy to think about, yeah. You know, I yeah. mean, it's, it's, it's this, this new person has a lot of the traits of and passions as the old person, but there are subtle nuances that are distinct. Do you go back to China Sometimes, yeah, I have I have gone back. I don't visit as much as I would like to. Yeah. 
Um, when you go back though and you start speaking mm -hmm. Chinese, do you feel like this other yeah, part of yourself comes out? Yeah, of course. I mean, even when I speak Chinese to my parents or if I meet, as soon as I start speaking Chinese, I think I become a slightly different person. I, I don't know why, but it's just, it's, it's a natural thing. It happens every time. But, and going back to your question, it was very difficult. Um, but I think that, I think that to hold to what is difficult is the single most important rule. I mean, I love rules. Mm -hmm. I usually break all of them, but this is one rule that I rarely break. But I think to hold to what is difficult is the most rewarding experience you can have. Yeah. Difficulty is such an opportunity for expansion, for transformation. I mean, it sucks, but it's so invigorating in hindsight. You know. Do you think your fascination with the reinvention mm -hmm. of these papers, mm -hmm. of these sort of paper pieces, mm -hmm. and this idea of like having to let go of mm -hmm. stuff yeah. has anything to do with your sort of experience of having to sort of find a new self or... Probably. Yourself. I mean, I'm not really attached to the things that most people are attached to. Just I mean, I wasn't just moving from China to North Dakota, but it was also moving to lots of different places. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think letting go. I think surrender is a big part of my work. Mm -hmm. um, I think choosing to work with the material that's as vulnerable, maybe. But at the same time, it has a will of its own. So it's mm -hmm. like paper is this interesting mix of vulnerability and integrity. Mm -hmm. And choosing to work with that in an outdoor environment means that I have to let go of a lot of expectations that I had as a two-dimensional artist. Right. You know, and this belief in my hand. Both of my degrees are in painting and drawing. So mm -hmm. people often spoke of the hand and, and the intuition of the artist. And and some of that has to is has to recede because you're dancing with something that for me is a lot more alive than a tube of paint. So surrendering oneself to that and being open to what can happen, you know, yeah. that's important. I wanted to also ask you about how did you get into making paper in the first place? Um you know, I went to gradu graduate school at University of Georgia, mm -hmm. uh, but I was very very disillusioned with the process of adding and subtracting materials on two-dimensional surfaces. I mean, even before I got there. Mm -hmm. So honestly, I was having sort of a miniature artistic, it was not even miniature, it was a like full a blow, like a colossal artistic crisis. There aren't very many places where you can make paper in the United States, but University mm -hmm. of Georgia actually had a paper making studio as part of their printmaking department. Nyleen Wallace was the teacher there and I just remember walking by these small abaca experiments. They're very, it's very translucent. Mm -hmm. It's very translucent fiber that's mm -hmm. also very strong. I fell in love with <laughs> the materiality of it. And it was something totally unknown to me. I yeah. didn't even know you could make paper. And it's like, what is, how do you make paper? Right. You know, and I had no answers. And I'm like, that's exciting. I want to be in a place where I don't know how to answer anything. Yeah. So I started... I started making paper just on a very small scale. Um, and then obviously I wanted to work, eventually return to monumental pieces and it kind of just evolved from that. That's really cool. But I was obsessed. I mean, I wasn't even, I wasn't even obsessed. I was like possessed. By, by the paper. process. Right. I mean, I just, I think like I, I had, we all, all of the painting and drawing people had studios close to each other. And I just, I didn't show up to my studio for like a year and a half because I was always downstairs making paper. That's so funny. I, so I loved it so much. Are you harvesting? Where do you get? Uh huh. I guess it's fibers and it's stuff. Bark. Yeah, it's the bark. Inner, it's where a, do you get bark? Um, eventually, I would like to have my own kozo garden. Yeah. But obviously, you know, living in an apartment, that's not possible. So I there's a there's a few paper making suppliers in the U.S. Carriage House and if a few other ones I can't remember right now, but you can you can purchase bark through them. And that's Very what cool. I do. Yeah. But it would be great to have a garden, a Kozo garden. The Morgan Conservatory in Cleveland, Ohio has a Kozo garden. That's right. And you spent time in Cleveland, right? Yeah, I did a re residency there. And then also I think University of Iowa has a Kozo garden. Wow. And I'm possibly a women's studio workshop, but I'm not positive on that. So it's a sustainable garden? Like you can... Yeah, it's a sustainable because Kozo is this really voracious plant that kind of grows like a weed. Yeah. 
And what happens is we only have, typically in Kozo Gardens, you only have male Kozo trees because- It'll it, go out of control. Because it'll go out of control, take over whatever's around it. So it's this bush that grows. Um, and what you do is you harvest the bran all of the branches, I think in the fall, and then you process the branches to get to the inner bark. But the stumps actually regrow branches every, every year. Crazy. Right. So it's a it's kind of a sustainable it is. material. It is. It is a totally sustainable material, which is why people were using it thousands of years mm -hmm. ago. You know, because you're not you don't have to wait for the tree to grow back. It's just growing back. It's just like growing right away. back. It's it's essentially a field of really large grass to me. You know, the same mm -hmm. things grow every year from the same stumps and it's harvested again and again. And it makes again. me think of bamboo, which yeah, grows like yeah, a weed. It's very similar. Bamboo yeah. is, yeah, bamboo is very intense. Yeah. So you take the bark and then you crush it up, no, hammer you have, it, you or have to, soak it. You have to strip it. You have to strip yeah. the bark. And then I actually haven't done this yet, but I would like to. And I think after you strip it, you have to steam it, you have to dry it. And then once the bark has dried, then you can use it to make paper. So after the bark is dried, you have to cook it with a mild alkali, such as soda ash, mm. to help break down the fibers and to get rid of any ligands within the plant, which would make the paper non-archival. Um, and then after the bark has been cooked, and when it's cooking, it smells like cornbread, um, after the fibers have been cooked, you have to physically beat it with a mallet to separate the fibers into individual strands. And then they re they sort of reattach themselves to each other. When they're pulp. Yes. And drying. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about your drawing process. Was uh -huh. this before you got into paper paper? Yeah, this was right before I got into paper. Um I also set up some rules for myself. So mm -hmm. I think of my studio as a game. And where I set up certain rules so that I see what happens within the parameters that I set up for myself. Um, mm -hmm. So when I was making this group of drawings, I, I think I said I would go for a walk every day. And then after I came back to my studio, I would just sit in front of this wall for maybe six to seven hours. And I only wanted to use one kind of mark to make these drawings. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of any variation of just a single line. Mm -hmm. So you can see that some of the marks are tiny and then some of the the some of the marks are a little bit longer. So it's an elongated, mm -hmm. enlarged version of what a line would be. So these drawings were slowly made over I think I want to say six to eight months because it encompasses millions of marks, maybe more than millions of marks. Yeah. Because they're big. They're maybe five feet, five by four feet or something like that. I can't remember the exact dimensions at this point. But um, they were also about things coming together and falling apart. I did think of them as mysterious landscapes or otherworldly spaces where one is not really quite sure what's happening. But it's obvious that a process is taking mm -hmm. place. Mm -hmm. Sort of like if you take an image of an explosion then the, the, the clouds, you know, the explosion happens really quickly. But if you take an image of it, it or if you watch a video of it, the way that the clouds are moving is very, very slow. Yeah. So there's this interest contrast between fastness and slowness. And that's what I was thinking about when I made these works. One thing, just because we've been mm -hmm. talking all about the paper process, mm -hmm. for some reason, I'm looking at the little marks as mm -hmm. almost things that are going to come together yeah. and form something yeah definitely in the way that paper yeah works yeah. in a funny way it's kind yeah. of interesting yeah i mean it's interesting i put those pieces up there because i really think they were talking about they were trying to talk about the things that i'm speaking about much more clearly now through the work. material yeah, yeah because it was almost as if when i was making these drawings i didn't have the language that was necessary to understand my own desires and my own interests yeah. And slowly through the process of paper making, I've been able to distill a language that's emblematic of the philosophies and, and the ideas that I'm interested in. Totally. And you've got the horizon. Yeah. You're working with that yeah. concept yeah. in this work, too. Yeah, definitely. Your show is up until uh, January 20th. Right. We might, be, we might be extending that deadline because mm -hmm. the show will actually evolve over time. So the idea is that I actually have maybe like 20 more pieces of paper and storage at Real Artways. And I'll be coming in a few times over the duration of the show to make new compositions. Oh, wow. So the show is 
changing as time goes on. That's awesome. Yeah. So um, I overestimated how much time I would have. So we're actually in conversation about extending the final day from January 20th to something that's a little bit later, maybe February, Mm -hmm. the end of February Mm -hmm. or the middle of March. Yeah. Dark segment will change a few times. Tell me about the title dark segment. Dark segment. Okay. So um, as you know, half of the earth is covered in shadow and any given time and uh the dissolve between night and day is scientifically referred to as the terminator whoa (laughs) yeah right isn't that funny that's crazy i almost named my show the terminator the terminator but then i was afraid that people would just think of arnold schwarzenegger right well it's pretty hard not to right it's impossible i thought arnold schwarzenegger but it's actually also this dissolve between night and day not just on Earth's surface, but on the surface of any planet. Um, and the and dark segment refers to the the end of the Terminator, which is like this dark blue shadow that kind of falls across the sky during dusk. Oh wow! Yeah, and, and dawn. And I was I was reading about I was reading about the Terminator. I have no idea why, but what I found to be really interesting is that despite the fact that it's this immense shadow. You know, we're sort of at its mercy, mm-hmm. right? All of our lives are structured around the idea of night and day. Yeah. What do we do in the daytime? What do we do, what do, we do in the nighttime? So millions of people are living their lives according to this change between being able to see and not being able to see, right? Yeah. So despite despite the fact that it has so much power, it's actually very sensitive. Um, mm. The Terminator, when it falls across topographical changes in landscape, mm-hmm. it actually speeds up. Whoa. Just by, I think its velocity is something crazy, like a thousand miles an hour. And the speed, it's speed is there a, is there a scientific explanation for? I have no idea why it speeds up. I, mean, I have to do more research, but it speeds up but when, it, when it climbs up mountain ranges and things like that. And then at the North and South Pole, obviously it reaches a velocity of zero, right? Yep. Um, so I was interested in the Terminator because it, seem to be very human like mm-hmm. us that it could respond to something as innocent as a mountain range and then also seem to connect to the vulnerability of paper as a material yeah as something that's capable of holding the impressions of what happens to it and because i didn't want to name my show the terminator i decided to call it dark segment which that's is that really cool. band of deep blue that appears in the sky uh after the sun sets Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. it, It was a pleasure. Remember to subscribe to us on iTunes. If you like the show, give us a good rating. And if you have a moment, write a review. Thanks for listening. Special thanks to Bruce Barber, director of WNHU, for providing the resources and guidance to make this podcast possible. Thank you.